0: Some nightmares are works of art. Their dissonant melodies sing with the beauty of a cello concerto. Even in their eerie keys, the tunes of their maladies have a rhythm, and in the patterns of pestilence and putridity are the echoes of what came before it, full, vibrant life, colorful dreams, visions of blissful reverie. Darkness is not a defiance to light. It is an homage to it, a humble reflection of what havoc it wreaks when it departs from our lives. In the absence of joy, we are left to find substance in sorrow. Without happiness, we are given two options. We can fumble through the darkness with closed eyes, determined to navigate with outstretched hands and numb fingers, too afraid to peer into the shadows. Or we can let our pupils stretch to their full potential, steal our senses, and breathe that baleful darkness in deeply before dawn. Some stories, like the one you are about to hear, have no silver lining. They sit at the recesses of human memory, nearly forgotten by history itself. Their homes are infected with ghosts cannibalizing themselves, their screams confined to books whose covers are seldom opened. But tonight, we take a deep breath to pry open the coffin on a story buried long ago, the tale of the Red Inn. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and these are the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history, and this is Mania. In the first decades of the 1800s, there existed a curious inn called the Inn of Père Bay. Nestled in the countryside of southeastern France, the establishment was frequented by travelers and locals alike. Yet this inn lacked the quaint innocence one might imagine for having existed in such simple times. For indeed, they were not simple at all. And despite their upbringings as farmers, Pierre and Marie Martin, the married couple who oversaw the inn, found themselves in the social upheaval of the time. Marie and Pierre Martin were ultra-royalists, meaning that their ties to Charles X in the first decades of the 1800s garnered them a little power and a small fortune during his reign. The couple, who were used to a life of subsistence living, were given the opportunity to taste wealth after Pierre became a henchman for the local nobility. André Martin, the nephew of Pierre, also worked beneath the shadow of the family's cloak. Of course, this fortune could not come without biding at the peace and prosperity of others. For years, Pierre's job was to assist nobles who were returning from exile by recovering land from local farmers. Using intimidation and sometimes force, these farmers would be coerced into handing over their land on the cheap to the nobility Pierre represented. That all would have been fine and well for the Martins, except that in the early 1830s, the political climate in France changed dramatically. Beginning with the overthrow of Charles X, a royalist, his replacement, Louis-Philippe, was the last king of France. For about 23 years, Pierre and Marie Martin kept the inn. Though the records are sparse, it's estimated it had officially rooted itself in the community around 1805. Throughout those years, Pierre gained a true reputation as a brute for his unkind dealings with the locals. But the inn didn't truly need to subsist on the charity or business of wayward travelers. Over the course of his career as an ultra-royalist, it's estimated that the Martins accumulated 30,000 gold francs, around 600,000 euros in today's currency. So this inn with dark underpinnings in the France countryside was very much far from your average mom-and-pop shop. With this tense relationship between him and the locals growing distasteful and downright terrible rumors, he was not only disliked, but seen as something of a monster. Beyond his political ties to Charles X, Pierre's history with those guests who stayed at his inn was dubious, at best. After all, they didn't have to depend on quality service to keep the business afloat. But indeed, few people knew the truth about Pierre and Marie Martin. What they did behind closed doors was left to the speculation of the local communities. The couple, who sequestered themselves away in their business, were a mystery to those outside the family itself. That is, except for one truly poor soul, Jean Rochette. Jean became a worker for the Martins in the autumn of 1831. But a worker is a charitable term. Jean was, for all intents and purposes, a servant. The early 1800s of this area was no stranger to the class of peasantry, and Jean had more in common with them than any other. And yet Jean had a life far better than most peasants in that time. He was fed well, housed in the inn, and given the luxury of an environment controlled by masters whose coin purses would ensure that his basic comforts would never be threatened. But there was a price for the servant's comforts, the price of keeping secrets. Jean learned quickly not to grow attached to any of the guests who happened to stay at the inn for an extended period of time, and especially not those who shared their stories. With the hearth roaring, a full kitchen equipped with enough food to make any patron's mouth water, the Red Inn was a godsend for many exhausted travelers. But the comforts of the inside, the quiet but welcoming owners, the stocked liquors and wines, were the hollow lures of a trap far more devious in nature. Having just cleaned a cistern on an autumn evening, Jean walked into the parlor of the inn. Marie had just finished filling the wine glass of their newest guest, a man named Maurice. His muddied boots glistened from the amber glow of the fire. Dark circles rimmed his eyes, though he wore a tired grin, as he entertained Pierre with quiet recounts of his travels. Jean saw another object illuminated by the fire, a thin gold band around the man's pinky. Pierre shot Jean a stern look just as Maurice realized the servant was standing in on their conversation. The disheveled adolescent murmured an apology before the traveler could even introduce himself. Backpedaling into the unlit hallway, Jean stopped to listen from the shadows. To Maurice, these were the affable introductions of guest and owner getting to know each other over a low fire, But to Jean, this moment was a quiet torture. Hours after their guest had gone to sleep, Jean heard the slow, heavy footsteps of Pierre. He scrubbed and scrubbed at the bits of charred flesh, trying not to remember where they came from or how they were prepared. Then Pierre stopped. His shadow, cast by the lantern behind him, swallowed up the light Jean was using for his work. "'I told you not to be seen,' Pierre said. "'Sorry, master,' Jean replied. An exhausted tear slipped out of the adolescent's eye. It was a bodily reaction at this point, the emotions behind it too tired to cause a convulsion, sob, or even the barest hint besides the moisture that fell into the dirtied water. "'Your work isn't through for the night after you've finished here. See me in the barn.' Jean's heart coiled in on itself. His hands stopped scrubbing. He knew better than to protest. Not waiting for an affirmation, Pierre left through the hallway to the back door. The sound of rain splashed into the home as the door was opened. Then Jean was left to his scrubbing, his tears, and the dark waters that had long since grown cold around his hands. With the washing done, Jean trenched through the muddied fields between the inn and the barn. Tucked away from the main road and bordered by chestnut trees, their branches hissed with the stormy winds, lashing his face with heavier drops falling from their leaves. Before entering the barn, Jean turned towards the inn. There was only one window lit with candlelight, the master room, and in its window panes was the silhouette of Marie Martin whose eyes felt the Jean as black as her shadow as they scrutinized his hesitation. The boy took in a shaky breath and swung the barn door open. It had not been long enough for the stench to properly mature, but he knew the smell well enough, even in its earliest stages of decomposition. It was not so much the stench of rotting, but wasted flesh, an undeniably psychological sympathy recognized in an almost imagined aroma It smelled of a life ended prematurely. It reeked of ill intent and disdain. It was the smell of fresh, human organs. You see, I've been kind to you this evening, despite your indiscretion, Pierre grinned, slamming a butcher's blade into the thick table. Jean flinched and thanked his master while his eyes adjusted to the sight of Maurice, Now messily rearranged on the table, one of his eyes seemed to look at him from the pedestal of a severed neck, while the other socket had been shut tightly in a violet bruise. Have it prepared before midnight, Pierre ordered, his boots squelching in the mud, glistening with puddles brought to light by a single hanging lantern above the table. After Pierre left, more tears fell from Jean, joining another kind of dark water beneath him. As he wrenched the butcher's knife from the table, he could feel the metallic stench clawing into his throat. While he swung out at an arm, he imagined his master's neck waiting instead beneath the blade. The following day, Jean endeavored to try and scrub out the memories of the night before, this time at a spot of mold growing on the kitchen floor. Though the aroma was masked by spices and sizzling oil. As he worked, Jean smelled an odd scent in the air. It was the smell of Maurice's cooking, a smell accompanied by the contented humming of Marie as she continued to perfect her pate recipe. Then he heard a yelp from the parlor. Both Jean and Marie stopped what they were doing to investigate. By the looks of it, Pierre had just concluded haggling with a beggar by smacking him across the head before pushing him off the inn's doorstep and demanding he find somewhere else to stay. Nothing to see, then, Marie sighed before turning an eye toward Jean. You've been working up an appetite for our supper, haven't you? How's pâté sound? That suits you well? she asked. Yes, madam, Jean replied with a faint grin. Of course. Jean often ate supper alone, either in his chamber or outside. Ever since he had gotten involved with preparing the meat, He'd only manage a mouthful, despite his stomach, instead contenting himself on nicked slices of bread and butter, mostly throughout the day. More often than not, this left him sneaking outside while the Martins dined to find a place where he might upend the contents of his plate into a patch of shrubbery. Once again, the servant felt the squelch of mud on his heels as he ventured into the fields. Garcon, a voice called out to him. Jean looked toward where the noise had been coming from, wondering if at last one of his victims had come to haunt him. Instead, it was the beggar from before, crouched under the low roof of the shed by the barn where they had used to breed chickens, back when their menu was more forgiving. The servant approached him, not before checking for a silhouette from the master bedroom. "Garson, are you done with that? The beggar pointed toward the bowl. Oh, this? Jean stammered. You wouldn't like it. The beggar laughed at what he thought was a quip at his expense, snatching the plate still hot with three slices of pâté smothered in gravy. The slices of Maurice were devoured in moments, too fast even for the servant to turn a shade of green. Jean retrieved the plate and brought it inside, returning with a pillow from his chamber and a thin blanket. "'You won't tell your master I'm here, will you?' the beggar asked. "'Not a soul,' Jean promised." Jean watched the beggar negotiate a corner, scrunching himself into a practiced ball, squeezing out what comfort he could in the blanket and pillow. You're a good lad, the beggar murmured as he shut his eyes. The rain continued to roll down Jean's face. A good lad, he said again. That night, a guest banged on the door of the inn, awakening the Martins and their servant. It was October 12th, 1831. The stranger explained that he was a farmer who had lost one of his female calves. After leaving to dress himself in some proper garments, the owner of the Red Inn returned with a look of good humor on his face that wasn't there moments before. "'Well,' Pierre laughed. "'Funny you should say. Just this evening, a stray calf wandered into our fields.' We've kept her out back. Out of the blasted rain, I hope, the farmer said. Pierre reassured him this was the case, and gestured for him to follow around the back of the inn. Well, where have you kept her? the farmer asked. Oh, in the barn, Pierre replied. After Pierre had walked out the back door with the farmer close at his heels, Jean tugged on the man's arm. The servant mouthed the word, Don't. But his eyes, wide, black orbs in the darkness, begged him further. Wrinkling his nose at the unkept look of the servant, the farmer recoiled his arm from Jean's grasp and followed the owner of the Red Inn to the barn. No sooner had the farmer reached the barn doors than did Pierre pick up a rusted scythe hanging on the wall, using the velocity of turning on his heels to wallop the farmer over the head with its handle. Though the blow struck the farmer to his knees, he managed a loud cry. Jean stood in the frame of the back door, grinding his teeth. Between the rafters of the shed, Jean saw the sight of the beggar's form moving. Pierre brought his heel down on the farmer's left knee, eliciting a crunch which rivaled the steady pattern of rain. Pleading between confused protests. Pierre kicked the farmer onto his back before delivering a series of fatal, increasingly more vicious blows with his heel into the man's skull. Before Jean turned away, he caught sight of the beggar fleeing into the neighboring fields, where the quick flight of his feet was masked by the sound of the thunderous downpour. On October 25th, a magistrate arrived at the Red Inn to investigate the disappearance of a man After all their indiscriminate killings, what appeared to be an innocent farmer lost his way, turned out to be a rather prominent horse dealer in neighboring communities. And unlike passing travelers, his passing had been noticed, and then horrifically discovered once his body was turned up downstream of a nearby river behind the inn. Evidently, The Martins thought they had enough meat that week to go around. The beggar who had witnessed the murder firsthand, one Laurent Chaz, testified to the investigating magistrate, and then two years later, on June 18, 1833, when the trial of the Four Monsters began at the court of Ardèche, Pierre and his nephew faced a harsh trial. At first, nobody believed that Marie could be a murderer due to her being a woman before the same testimony of over a hundred witnesses had her fate tossed in with the other two Martins. As for Jean, his sentence was no lighter. The community already vilified the Martins for their reputation in the years prior to Charles X falling out of power. This act of murder, substantiated by a sea of wild accusations pertaining to cannibalism, only hastened their doom in the eyes of the court. Jean's lawyer accepted the fact that his client took part in the killings, and in other instances was provoked to murder. He pled that Jean was not responsible due to his inability to break free of his master's authority. But this, of course, only solidified his portrayal, perhaps as a victim to his master's influences, but a killer as well, nonetheless. On June 29th, Pierre's nephew was acquitted, as he had taken no part in the killings. And on October 2nd, 1833, the morning sun rose with a dispersed fleet of grey storm clouds, hearkening back to those first months of Jean's employment two years prior. The execution was to take place in the very same spot in which the crimes occurred, just outside the inn itself. In the shadow of a freshly erected guillotine, the adolescent stood before the door of death, and being the first to bend his knees, beneath a glistening steel blade and a solid slab of chestnut to ensure his swift departure. He cried out, just before the blade loosed, Cursed masters, what have you not made me do? A crowd of thirty thousand were in attendance to hear the scornful cry, brought to an abrupt halt by the slicing and then rolling of his head after the masters had joined their servant in whatever fate awaited them beyond the mortal plane. A ball was organized in front of the premises. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining me in the theater for yet another Dark Tale. But before we dig into the machinations behind this odd story, let's introduce a sponsor to hmm? Ah yes, let's see, Audible, Audible, right? Well the story with this one is that you can get a free book on the house if you sign up at audibletrial.com forward slash mania. Nothing too flashy, you get a free book, a free trial, and it helps the theater. Now where were we? This story is certainly an example of my flair for melodrama. As per usual, the characters, setting, and timeline of the story are all too true to history, but the hard truth is that it's dubious at best what the majority of the accusations against the Martins were and how many of them were true. Although we know that there was some social and political tension for Pierre's work as a henchman, we do not have direct evidence for the claims referring to cannibalism, or more specifically, the pâtés and stews that many alleged were, in fact, made with human meat. One report from a local was that they'd seen a couple of severed hands just chilling out in a pot of boiling stew. Now, when I read that, as much as I wanted to jump at the opportunity to write about it, it seemed so painfully contrived that I just kind of let it be. I considered making Pierre the focal point of the story, but after I read the historical quote, "'Masters, what have you not made me do?' I knew instantly that Gene needed the spotlight. In fact, this protest is one of the few details in the events following the murder which really substantiates some of those other rumors at all. Gene's deathly lamentation for their orders somehow adds credence to all those wild claims. After all, he could have said any number of things right before the guillotine fell, and yet he chose that, and I found that fascinating. Of course, we can't know for certain if Martin was a brutish, indiscriminate murderer. However, the only murder which was completely proven to be by their hand, did in fact come with a smashed skull and a shattered knee. The weight of that single killing of the horse trader was enough for a fatal sentence in that time. But as far as my understanding goes, even for then, it was a bit scathing. So if nothing else, Martin certainly had a vicious side. It doesn't take much to imagine him doing that more than once. There is speculation from historians that this whole thing was something of a lesson on behalf of the new nobility. Although history is often stranger than fiction, my cynical side leads me to lean over to this conclusion more than anything, as it is certainly a more boring but feasible explanation for a triple execution followed by a celebratory ball to seemingly celebrate the whole affair. So what we're left with are the whisperings of a very real Sweeney Todd tale. A poor, abused servant who, this time, did not come out the better for it, and a whole mess of blood on our hands. Just how we like it. But before I leave you to dream of meat pies, I must remind any pleased listener to head directly to patreon.com forward slash Harlequin Guests of my theater get exclusive goodies from me, and of course, are inducted into a very clandestine and special group of individuals who support the show directly. In the last few weeks, there have been a handful more of you, and really, I just cannot stress how grateful I am. For much of the show's life, I had just five or six patrons, and in just a few weeks, that number suddenly jumped up to twelve. This literally brought tears to my eyes, realizing that this community is growing, and actually helping manifest this vision into reality. And there really is something to that reality. All the funds go directly into liberating the theater and taking it to newer heights. For example, with the listener support just recently, I've been able to collaborate with a musician to create an original soundtrack just for the show. Ruben is a composer from England who plays with a gothic flair. The two of us are thrilled to see how the first few tracks have turned up. And we suspect that by the end of the summer, the small album should be completed. And that's just one example. So if these stories enrich you, please take a moment, head on over to Patreon, and become a verified acolyte of mania. And with that, it is unfortunately time for me to say farewell. But as always, the theater is ever open to you.